0: Let's take our Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We'll be taking a little bit of a break from Ephesians this morning just to set the trajectory of our attention and our lives as we turn over a new year. Each year I take either the last Sunday of the year or the first Sunday of the year and just do something special to kind of reorient. If the, if our, if the world wants to talk about resolutions and kind of reorienting life, I think that we as Christians can certainly take that clue, although that should be something that we do week in and week out, not wait till the first of the year. Never forget a college student who was in our ministry a long time ago at another church who, um, it was in August, and we were talking about Bible reading, and he said, "Well, I plan on reading the Bible through. And I said, great. I mean, what's your plan? He says, well, I'm going to start in January. This was August. And I said, why? He says, because that's when the paper says to start. So you don't have to wait till January, but guess what? Tomorrow's January. So good time to make some, uh, some changes. Before we look at the passage in 1 Corinthians, which we're going to turn our attention to, I want to give you a little bit of background if I can. First of all, today, is the last day of the year, December 31st, 2023. Now, if you're paying attention, and I know some of you were, you'll know how unique today's date really is, right? 12-31-23. If you take out the slashes, it's 1-2-3-1-2-3. It's a good day for a birthday. If anybody wants to have a baby today, go for it. Um, If it's a good day for an anniversary, if anybody wants to get married, just let me know. We can stay afterwards and take care of that this afternoon as well. Great day. One, two, three, one, two, three. Each year and each New Year's uh, celebration time, uh, we pause in our study of the book we're exposing to look to look together at some specific encouragement from God's Word to begin a new year. There's nothing special. There's nothing mandated in the Scripture about it. But I think if the whole world wants to kind of reorient on this weekend, why not us? And before we turn to the passage, like I said, in 1 Corinthians, I want to give you some historical background that I think will serve us as we look to this passage. In Acts chapter 20, verse 24, you can just listen. Paul said this, but I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself So that I may finish my course in the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the grace of God. Now, if you're looking for a life verse, that's a good one. If you're looking for a verse of the day or a verse of the week or a verse of the month or a verse of the year, that could be a nominee. Acts 20, verse 24. I don't consider my life of any account as dear to myself, which is the exact opposite of the way all of us intuitively live, where our life is most dear to ourself and everything is to protect and promote and to coddle our own lives i hope this verse is underlined or maybe highlighted in your copy of god's word in a way it's kind of a reset paul lived and thought differently than most self-preservation was not a motive for paul Life or death was not the issue that really mattered to him. What mattered most, as he said to the Philippians, is that Christ shall be magnified. This is Philippians 1.20. That Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. Think about that. Christ will be magnified in my body, whether I'm alive or whether I die. I want Christ to be most magnified in my body. Striking parallel here with Paul's Final words with the phrase, finish the race, that Paul tells, that Luke records Paul saying in Acts 20. Because he said the same thing to Timothy in 2 Timothy I want to finish the course and finish my race. You know, we've been talking a lot about dying and death in the life of our church, and it should make you think what will be your legacy? One day, you and I will have a memorial or a funeral. And hopefully someone might say some nice things. What will they say about your legacy for Christ? Kent Hughes captures Paul's heart when he writes, we should be determined to finish the course whatever the cost. A man or woman who never does anything except what can be done easily will never do anything worth doing at all. Think of what such an attitude means to the church. Think of what it means to the missionary enterprise. Undoubtedly, cheeks began to flame and eyes began to gleam as Paul, as Paul's comrades in arms, listened to his gospel passion. "End quote." It's very good little background to that background. Paul was rushing from Troas up in the north to reach Jerusalem by Pentecost. He had an offering from the Macedonians, the Corinthians, who understood that the Jews who had become Christians in Jerusalem were starving to death. They been, they'd been disenfranchised from, from their jobs, from the temple worship, uh, from their friends, from their neighborhoods, because they had become Christians. No way to make money. They were starving. So he takes up an offering from the Corinthians, from the Macedonians, and he takes it down to them. Now, the way he got there was a jump seat. He got on a, a boat that was a merchant ship. Uh, there, there weren't, very, weren't commercial um, ships for him to jump on, and this commercial ship would stop at all the ports of call on the way down the coast of Asia Minor and uh, the coast of Israel. Well, they stopped here at down the Aegean Sea, they stop at Miletus. Miletus was important because Miletus was only 30 miles a day's walk. They were in better shape than us. A day's walk from Ephesus where he had spent three years as pastor. So he's there for a day or two. He's not going to leave because he knows that the boat may leave him. They don't care. So he's staying close to the port and he he sends for the Ephesian elders to come and be with him. A couple of days later, all the Ephesian elders come to meet with Paul at Miletus, and Paul instructs them, informs them, this is goodbye, I'm not going to see you again. I know what the Lord has waiting for me, and it won't include coming to see you again. He was on a God-given layover and had this conversation with these elders from Miletus. Paul knew, and they found out they would never see each other again. So they gathered in that little house in Miletus. Luke was there to take down exactly what Paul said and what happened. Goodbyes are never easy and saying goodbye for the last time is heart-wrenching. But the verse I just read you is after the two verses that preceded. I I went to seminary. I know that, okay? So there are two verses that go before that. Listen to what they say and then listen to what Paul says. Paul says to the elders, Behold, I am imprisoned. I'm bound in spirit. I'm on my way to Jerusalem not knowing what will happen to me there and you know what's happened. They end up sending him toward Rome to suffer execution eventually. Except this. <laughs> How would you like this to be the, God's plan for your life? This is what he says. The Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me that in every city saying, bonds, chains, and afflictions await me. How's that for God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life? Everywhere you go, Paul, the Holy Spirit says, it's gonna be chains and bonds and beating and imprisonment and sufferings, and eventually you're gonna die for the gospel. After saying that, then he says, but, but I don't consider my life of any account as dear to myself so that I may finish my course in the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. Why all that background? Why is that important? Because Paul's personal testimony, his philosophy of life and ministry, provide tangible credibility for what he's about to exhort the Corinthians to do and to be. We'll look at that here in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Follow along as I'll read beginning in verse 18. Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body. But the immoral man sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. This is not only an exhortation to the believers at Corinth, it's a set of commands and challenges for every blood-bought believer in the gospel of Jesus Christ. In a sense, Paul is saying, don't believe the sin, the lies that sin tells you. We've learned from Ephesians chapter 6 that the devil is the father of lies, and he was a liar from the beginning. He uses the lies of this world and the lies of sin to make us think if we pursue sin, we will receive the the happiness and the satisfaction that we think it offers. That's a lie. Dr. Stuart Scott, in his excellent book, The Exemplary Husband, talks about some of the lies we tell ourselves about fulfilling our lusts. Here are some of those lies we tell ourselves. I'm quoting from Dr. Scott This is just a small sin, it doesn't matter. It won't hurt anyone. Or, but I need to think this sin or do this sin. Or this, I can't resist it. I'm only human. Or this activity will be so pleasurable. I'll never be able to change, so why try? I will never win against this temptation. No one will find out And no one will know. So why does it matter? I won't keep doing this. This will be my only time or my last time. I don't really have a problem. You ever told yourself any of those lies to enjoy sin? These justifications to sin and pursue sin shouldn't surprise us. In Paul's final letter to Timothy, in 2 Timothy 3, he says, Realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. How will we know? (laughs) For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious, gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, and then this, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God holding on to a form, a lie, of godliness, although they have denied its power. And then he says, avoid such men as these. So Paul says, look, you'll know you're in the last days and you'll know it's getting bad and it's moving from bad to worse when people will be lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Could it be that The unsatisfied obsession with sex that permeates our culture is a sign that the Lord's return is sooner than we might think. Though the primary sin that Paul is addressing in this passage is sexual immorality, and we should listen to what he's saying about that. I think the principles for fighting the sin here apply to any sin and every sin. The the three principles we're going to extract from this text work are useful, are helpful, are invited to apply for any sin that you might be wrestling with in mind or in deed. So let's break this down together. Three strategies for a Godward life. We're starting a new year tomorrow. I think this is a good place to start. Three strategies for a Godward, where we're living toward God, a Godward life. The first is in the first two words of verse 18. Verse 18. Endless fleeing. Endless fleeing. Two words flee, immorality. Now, the Greek language has different tenses for verbs that communicate different degrees of duration and intensity. And the tense of this verb indicates a continued and a continual action. In other words, it's saying, constantly be in the state of fleeing. Don't ever stop fleeing. Flee and keep fleeing. And keep fleeing some more. By the way, Paul uses the same construction in chapter 10, verse 14, to speak of fleeing idolatry. The word does not mean merely avoid. There's another word that Paul uses for for avoiding that... He doesn't use here. It means run away and keep running. You can run, but it's going to chase you. And if you stop, it'll catch you. That's the point. John MacArthur explains it this way. When we are in danger of such immorality, we should not argue or debate or explain, and we certainly should not try to rationalize. We are not to consider it a spiritual challenge to be met, but a spiritual trap to be escaped. We should get away as fast as we can, end quote. We found clear instruction from Solomon on this in the book of Proverbs in chapter five, verse eight. He says, keep your way far from her, the adulteress. Do not go near the door of her house. Proverbs seven, verse 25. Do not let your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her ways paths. Flee and keep fleeing. Run and keep running. From what? Well, the word here is translated immorality, but you know what this word means. You'll know what this word means when I tell you the Greek word. It's the Greek word pornea, from which we get pornography, sexual sin. Now, let's talk about this for just a minute because it's important. It can mean any kind of sexual provocation or arousal related to anything outside of marriage. God gave sexual intimacy to married couples to enjoy. It's a blessing. It's a beautiful thing. The Song of Solomon extols it. But any kind of sexual temptation or sexual pleasure met outside of marriage is what we run from very clearly It relates to sexual touching, sexual viewing, and sexual thinking in any way that happens outside of the marriage bed. You say, well, that's that's kind of particular and kind of graphic and specific. Listen to what the writer of the Hebrews says. Hebrews 13, verse four, "'Let marriage be held in honor among all, "'and let the marriage bed be undefiled.'" It's pure, don't let it be experience impurity why should you run from immorality? And, and look, this is important. It wasn't, wasn't just important in Paul's day in Corinth. It's important for us as well. I mean, sex sells. It, it's, it's on almost every advertisement. It's, it's, it's always, I can't read the sports without seeing something pop up on, 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 on uh, my uh, ESPN app that I have to click off. It's, it's crazy how this is in our face all the time, everywhere. I've told you before, one of the sweetest experiences I can think of is there have been times on watching a television show, even a sports game, and something comes on, and to have have my own heart look away and to lock eyes with my son Mark, who's looking away at the same time, (laughs) what a grace. Why should you flee this? Look back up at verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Just fingernails on a chalkboard stop for a moment. What? He's talking about who's going to go to heaven. That's what it means to inherit the kingdom of God. That's where we go after we die, into the kingdom of God forever and ever. Don't be deceived, neither... Listen to these. Fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate nor homosexuals, then he gives another list, will inherit, verse 10, the kingdom of God. That one verse is all sexual sins. Such, what a great, what a great verb. Such were, used to be, were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and the spirit of our God. You used to have a problem with this, but not like you did. Now, it doesn't mean that you're one and done with sexual temptation, or he wouldn't say, keep fleeing. He would say, flee once and you're done. Don't you wish it was like that? No. This is something that we're gonna be constantly tempted by. So, uh, I think Paul's saying, if you wanna go to heaven, deal with sexual sin. And if you won't, then you need to ask yourself if you're truly a child of God. Now, that doesn't mean that you are perfect in that area. It means that you're, you find yourself fleeing, running from, dealing with it, hating it more than you love it. You also want to honor your spouse or your future spouse. It's important because it's enslaving. Look at chapter 6, verse 12. All things are lawful to me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but I will not be mastered by anything, specifically sin. And remember jo- uh, Joseph in Genesis 39, Potiphar's wife tries to seduce him. And what does he do? He runs, he flees, and he kept fleeing. He didn't turn back and say, maybe, maybe just a few minutes. No, he fled. Endless fleeing. You want to lean into this year with a new resolve? Run from sin. All sin, every sin, the practical application here is sexual sin. A second strategy for a Godward life, not only endless fleeing, but it's theological thinking. This is, if... If you've learned anything from Paul in our book, uh, study of Ephesians or back in Romans, you, you understand that he always gives you this footnote. Think theologically correctly to think rightly about your temptation and how to have victory. Verse 18. For immorality, every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Notice it doesn't say with his own body or in his own body. Against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, that you are not your own? You have been bought with a price. Here Paul outlines a way of thinking that's intended to make theological truth matter when considering sexual sin or any other sin. Do you, I know the answer to this. Do you stop to think theologically before you think in a way that's sinful or act in a way that's sinful? And the answer is no or not enough. At the heart of this section is Paul asking, do you not know? Don't you get it? He asked it in verse 2, verse 3, verse 9, verse 15, verse 16, verse 19. Do you not know? Do you not know? In other words, you ought to know this. Don't miss what the apostle is saying. Knowledge of divine truth is to be the gatekeeper of our holiness, not just willpower, not just trying harder. Theology. It's the gatekeeper. Let's break this down into three subsections. First of all, it means to recognize immorality's uniqueness. He says, every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. He says... Sexual sin is not worse than any other sin. It's different. It it has its own unique categories and, and characteristics. He takes special care to explain that sexual sin is especially unique in view of redemptive history. Don't misunderstand, immorality isn't worse. It's bad, but it's not worse. It's just different. Why? How do we know that? Note, immorality is not a sin with the body or in the body against the body. That's a strange construction. It's a sin against your own flesh. What does that mean? Well, think about this for a second. Let's say that you have a new car and you're borrowing this car from someone and you break the speed limit with that car. You get pulled over and you get a ticket. You would be sinning with the car, right? Right? But think about this, if you stacked as many open paint buckets of sewage as you could possibly gather in this brand new car that belongs to a good friend that you love, so that you could haul them across a field that was scarred with knee-deep ruts, and you went as fast as you could, you would not be sitting with the car, you would be sitting against that car. There would be damage done to the car. It would violate the purpose of the car. That's why in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 1 to 7, Paul tells them, listen, God is the avenger of those who commit sexual sin because they are actually sinning against one of his children. And he'll avenge that sin. And again, back to Hebrews 13, let the marriage bed be held in honor among all. Let the marriage bed be undefiled for fornicators, those who mess around with sexual sin before marriage or outside of marriage, and adulterers, those who do it once they're married or do it with another one who is married. God will judge. Do you really want God to be the avenger and judge against you? Sinning against someone indeed, sinning against your own body and mind. It's the second sub-application here. Understand the spirit's indwelling. Verse 19. And before we get into this, this we've talked about this several times before. This is a verse that many people have understood wrongly. I did for years, and, and you don't really get in trouble if you if you take the classic interpretation of this but there is a more specific understanding that I want you to be aware of. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you and whom you have from God? Now this passage talks about the spirits indwelling individually, which we know from John 14 and John 16 was promised, but also the spirits indwelling corporately in the church. And to understand this, You have to go to the superior application of the English language, which is articulated in the way we speak in Tennessee. Because we say y'all. It's a plural, second person uh, pronoun. And it makes it very simple. If you're talking to a person, you say you. If you're talking to a group, you say y'all. It makes so much sense. So let me, and Paul does the same thing in Greek. He says you and y'all. I think he'd say y'all. there's a different word for plural than there is singular. This is what it would sound like if we were to translate it literally. Do y'all not know that y'all's plural, body, singular, is a temple of the Holy Spirit who's in you, whom you have from God? So y'all, all of you have a singular body, not your individual body, but the body of Christ. Now, you might say, well, that kind of takes away a motivation if I don't think of my body as the temple of the Holy Spirit. Oh, no, 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 just the opposite. If you know that you are a part of the greater body of Christ and he indwells us as a temple of God corporately and your sin matters to everyone around you, it ups the ante. Makes it more serious. Yes, yes. Immorality violates the spirit' presence within us. We'll talk about that in a moment. His permanent abiding presence is as surely with the believer as the nose on your face and easy to ignore. I think think about this. Many of us have cell phones, and the cell phone signal is designed to activate your telephone when someone is calling. But if you have the cell phone off, or silence, and, and, and I hope you do right now, by the way then the reality of the signal won't make you respond. I hope your cell phones are indeed turned off this morning, but recognize this. Your cellular signal is there and it's real. The question is, have you turned it on to receive the signal? Likewise, the reality of the Holy Spirit's presence is always there. But is your sensitivity turned on to hear His convicting presence, to feel His convicting presence? Siamese twins cannot ignore one another's presence, and the believer has a more intimate relationship with the Spirit of God than even Siamese twins do. Look at what he says. And do you not know that you are not your own? We talk a lot about possession. We've been talking about this in Ephesians. Some people talk about a demon possesses someone, which means owns Well, we we dealt with that a few weeks ago, but are you aware that you are, as a Christian, you are possessed by God? He owns you? You are not your own. You are owned by God. Whose do you think you are? Well, you're God's, if you're a Christian, and get this, Sorry, those of us who grew up in America, but you as a Christian have no rights. God has them. God owns us. The gospel is to deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow Him. Think about this. you back to that new car. Your friend loaned you that car. Brand new, still smells new on the inside. You borrow this car and decide to scratch your name on the side. with a screwdriver. You like mayonnaise. You think it's good for leather seats and for skin, so you spread it all over the car. You like the color of mustard and ketchup, so you put that on the seats. You pour sugar in the gas tank because it's sweet. You loosen all the lug nuts on the wheels your friend's response would be, what have you done to my car? Listen. How often does God say, what are you doing with my soul I purchased? Which brings us To that third application, value salvation's cost. You're not your own. Verse 20, you have been bought with a price. And we know that price was the death of Jesus Christ on the cross as the payment for our sin who died in our place instead of us receiving the wrath of God that we rightly deserved and said, I will take it on myself so they don't have to. And they need righteousness, I will give them mine so they can't earn that because they can't earn their own. The focus is the cross. We've been bought with a price. 1 Corinthians 7 23. You were bought with a price. In Romans 6, Paul goes into great depth on this. After five chapters of talking about our freedom in Christ, our uh, being saved by grace through faith. In fact, his whole point is you can't do anything to be saved. God saved you based on you believing what he's done. All you're doing is believing. And by the time you get to chapter 6, you kind of start thinking, oh, wow. Well, if, if God's grace covers my sin then how about the more I sin, the more grace I receive? This is a pretty good deal all the way around. Paul knows that we would think that, and so he says, what shall we say then, Romans 6, 1? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? And then down to verse 11. <laughs> Even so, consider yourselves to be dead, to sin, but alive to God in Christ. Do not let sin reign, have, have, have a rule in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. Don't go on presenting the members, the parts of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Use this body for him and not sin. For sin shall not be mastered over you, For you're not under law but under grace. In 1 Peter 1, verse 18 and following, Peter says, You were not redeemed with valuable commodities of this world, gold and silver and precious stones. You You were redeemed, you were bought with the priceless blood of Jesus Christ, the death of God's Son. I love what Revelation says. Revelation 5, 9, they sang a new song the redeemed did. Worthy are you to take the book and break its seals for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue, people and nation. Are you able, maybe that's not the right question, are you willing to apply theological thinking in the moment of temptation. If you will, and if you are, then it leads to our third strategy, a God-possessed life. You will pursue God-possessed. Remember, we say God owns you. God-possessed living. You have been bought with a price. And then the last phrase in 20, therefore glorify God, make much of God with your body. It's interesting how Paul talks about the body in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 1 to 8. He calls this a tent, not a home, not a house. It's a tent. It's temporary. 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the what? Glory of God. So here's the question. Does God, does the Lord Jesus Christ Come to bear on your mind and decision making in the moment of temptation. Here's the key to all Christian living it's not a secret, we just don't apply it very often. Learning to interpose the thought of God in your mind when you're tempted to sin and keep that between you and the temptation to sin. Does God come to mind? teaching yourself to stop and to think before acting on sin, before dwelling on sinful thoughts. Every sin is the temporary eviction of God from your mind. Every time we sin in mind or deed is the temporary eviction of God in our mind. Oh, He's still present with us. But we have evicted him from our mind A.W. Tozer says it so, so well in the moment of sin every Christian becomes a practical atheist we may say we believe in God but we don't act like it every sin is the temporary eviction of God from the mind so to glorify God in your body means that he is the ultimate and deciding influence in our decision making in every decision I mean, here's, here's the point of this text whether it's sexual sin or any other, lust of flesh, lust of the eyes, the pride of life, whether it's materialism, whether it's pride, whether it's frustration or hatred or bitterness in the heart. Does God matter when you have those thoughts, when you, when you make those decisions to do those deeds and sin with your corporeal presence, your body? Do you believe he's really there? (laughs) Because he is. He is. We often think of that promise, I will never leave you nor forsake you as a comforting promise, And it is. But he will never leave us or forsake us in the moment of temptation as well. And remember, 1 Corinthians 10 also tells us that in every moment of temptation, there is a way of what? Escape. So that we can endure the temptation or the trial and not sin. Our bodies are to be used for the displaying of God's glory, making much of God. This, is, this, is, this flesh is how we interact with this world, this side of heaven. And we're to use it to glorify God, to make much of Him. So we're starting a new year. (laughs) It's a pretty good passage, isn't it? You've been bought with a price. Glorify God with your body. What will December 31st, 2024 feel like, look like, be like if we lean hard into this passage? I think it'd be different. How about this? What will this afternoon look like? if we lean hard into this passage, tomorrow morning, tomorrow during the day, tomorrow night, are we aware of God's presence and does it it make a difference? Don't evict God from your mind when temptation comes. Bring his presence to bear. He's there to empower, to strengthen, to help us. He is ever ready to come, ever ready to come to the prayer, Lord, help me fight this temptation in heart or in deed. We're going to pursue that holiness that the Hebrew, writer of the Hebrew says, without which we will not see God. Let's do that together. As the body of Christ, let's all have the impact of the body of Christ on each other help us to fight, to have victory over sin because our body is the temple of the very Spirit of God because He is indwelling each of us individually. Let's do that together. Father, I'm excited about what's coming in this new year and ask Your grace and presence to please Give us the enablement that only you can to fight temptation, to resist temptation, to hate sin, to stop, to pause, to think before a sin of the mind or a sin in deed. Slow us down. Oh, Father, help us to remember the theology that we hold precious so that what we believe impacts how we live and how we think. Make us different because of your presence with us. And how can we we dismiss ourselves without thanking you that we have been bought with an indescribable price? Make us mindful of that. Oh, make us mindful. Remind us. Help us to remember that especially in the moment of temptation when our heart wants to evict you out of our consciousness so that we can glorify you, our great God, with our bodies. In Jesus' name, amen.